Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Dick Hall groaned as he carefully shifted in his seat. Handcuffs chafed his wrists. His back hurt from being forced into a sitting position for hours on end, but he couldn't afford to relax. If he moved too much, the double-barrel shotgun rigged to his neck would fire. One foul move could cost him his life. Dick had been trapped by a former business partner, 44-year-old Tony Karitsis. He worried that if he didn't manage to somehow escape soon, he might be killed anyway. His mind reeled as he looked around, eventually settling his gaze on a lone pistol laying on the dining room table. If he could just get a hold of the gun, he might be able to force Tony to let him go. He decided to take the risk. He leaned slightly forward in his seat to get closer, listening for the telltale click of the shotgun. After a moment of silence, Dick breathed a sigh of relief. He'd managed to move just inches, but it felt like he'd run a marathon. Eventually, he worked up the courage to scoot even closer. This time, he made it a little further without tripping the trigger. It seemed like as long as he moved gently enough, he could avoid being shot. Slow, inch by inch, he neared the pistol, praying to God he would live to tell the tale. He was almost in reach of the gun when the sound of footsteps interrupted his flurried thoughts. His kidnapper appeared from the other room and snatched the pistol from the table. He seemed amused Dick had come so close. Dick didn't respond, but his silence said it all. An opportunity like that wouldn't come again. He felt like he'd just sealed his own fate. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed the feud between Tony Karitsis and the Meridian Mortgage Company in Indianapolis. Meridian loaned Tony over $100,000 to buy a plot of land in the city but after four years, he hadn't made a single payment. When the company threatened to foreclose on the property in 1977, Tony stormed into their offices and took Dick Hall, the son of the company's founder, hostage. This week, we'll discuss Dick Hall's fight for his life, the tense negotiation with police, and the dramatic aftermath that changed Indiana law forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. On the frigid afternoon of February 8th, 1977, 44-year-old Tony Karitsis sped down the interstate in a stolen Indianapolis police cruiser. Sirens blared as an endless stream of officers tailed him. Meanwhile, helicopters kept watch from above and news crews followed in hot pursuit. Tony was surrounded, yet no one dared to get too close. A little over an hour earlier, Tony had paraded around downtown Indianapolis with abandon all the while aiming a shotgun at his hostage, 42-year-old Dick Hall. The authorities couldn't risk stopping Tony by force because of the complicated trap rigged to Dick's neck. One wrong step and the shotgun would automatically fire. Tony's antics had succeeded in getting him the media attention he apparently craved, but his next move seemed to defy all logic. Indifferent to the army of law enforcement tailing him, Tony pulled into the large parking lot of his apartment complex. He dragged Dick Hall into the building while police stood by, completely powerless to intervene. Earlier that morning, Tony had appeared to be inept and improvising. He rambled incoherently about his goals of holding Meridian Mortgage responsible for giving him a bad loan. Then he decided on the fly to steal a patrol car when Dick entered Tony's home, however, he realized just how meticulous his captor could be. Initially, the place seemed like an average, if dilapidated, one-bedroom apartment. The walls were bare and there was an odd smell lingering, but other than that, things seemed normal. Until Dick's eyes landed on the corner opposite Tony's bedroom. There, he saw an exact replica of his father's office at the Meridian Mortgage Building. Tony had painstakingly arranged the duplicate to practice taking a hostage. But that wasn't all. When Dick looked closer, he made out an elaborate web of wires lining the walls and floors. All of them converged on two jars filled with explosives sitting on a closet shelf. There had to be a hundred pounds of dynamite rigged to blow. Suddenly, Tony's plan made a lot more sense. He'd expected the police to be close behind, but he never planned on running away. Now the authorities would have even more reason to play things safe if they wanted to keep Dick alive. The next confrontation played out exactly as Tony predicted. IPD officers entered the apartment complex and crept toward Tony's door, expecting to finally have the upper hand. But as they approached, 
Dick poked his head out into the hall and warned them not to come any closer. Frantic and terrified, he told them Tony's apartment was wired with nitroglycerin. If any window was broken or the door was opened fully, it would detonate. For now, they had to do whatever Tony demanded, or at least pretend to. From then on, officers kept a safe distance and prepared for a stakeout. Nearly 100 units of city, county, and state police gathered outside of the building to start the waiting game. Snipers lined the rooftops across the road from Tony's dimly lit apartment. Reporters crowded the lobby. So far, Tony seemed to be winning. The media circus surrounding the kidnapping was just what he was after. Finally, he had a platform to tell his side of the story about Meridian Mortgage. Tony had planned ahead by correctly anticipating that the IPD would fall back on standard protocol in a hostage situation with so much at stake. FBI psychologists on the scene advised against directly obstructing his plans. Instead, they suggested opening a dialogue with him over the phone to make him feel in control of the situation. The response was consistent with the psychological understanding of hostage takers at the time, and Tony was a prime case study. Before I continue with Tony's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. In a 1979 paper published in the journal Crime and Justice in America, Harvey Schlossberg made a key observation that helped law enforcement deal with hostage situations. He argued that, to someone like Tony, the specific hostage he had held little to no inherent value. Dick Hall was simply a means to an end to gather an audience. Hostage takers like Tony want attention. They need everyone to know and sympathize with their pain. Those observations seemed to fit perfectly with Tony's profile. Originally, he'd intended to take Dick's father, ML, as his hostage instead. But when he saw Dick enter the office first, he decided one person was as good as any other. It didn't matter who the sacrificial lamb was, as long as the city knew Meridian Mortgage had exploited him for profit. From the police's perspective, this meant hearing Tony out was vital. If they chose to fight him directly, he would only escalate the situation further, and he wouldn't hesitate to kill Dick if he was no longer useful. Opening the line of communication was easier said than done, however. It took until the morning of February 9th, the day after the kidnapping, for negotiations to really get underway. Tony spent most of that day in the kitchen, pacing back and forth while talking on the phone. At one point, Dick tried to swipe Tony's pistol off the table, so he was locked in the bathroom of the apartment as punishment. Tony mostly ignored him after that, only cracking the door occasionally to slide a plate of salami and cheese across the floor. The rest of that time, Dick was handcuffed to a chair, too afraid to even scratch his forehead. The police knew that wasting time only made the situation more dangerous, the chief of the IPD was one of the first to connect with Tony. For the most part though, all he did was listen while Tony ranted and raved with no rhyme or reason. All the mood swings and angry curses made it hard to even understand what he specifically wanted at first. But eventually, they managed to get on the same page. 
Tony's first demand was for law enforcement to guarantee he would not be ordered to see a psychiatrist or be committed to a mental institution. Ironically, he made this request in the most hostile and incoherent manner possible. Clearly, psychological help was among the things he needed most. Second, Tony demanded he be given immunity from legal prosecution. The order was submitted to the Marion County Prosecutor's Office and put under review. While he waited for a guarantee of immunity, Tony finally got into the meat of what he wanted. He told the founder of Meridian Mortgage, M.L. Hall, that he wanted the company to relieve him of his $130,000 debt and pay him an unspecified amount for all his troubles. From M.L.'s perspective, the situation was downright ridiculous. Since his company had granted Tony the loan five years earlier, Tony had made zero payments on the principal. Despite that, M.L. and his colleagues had done their best to advise and help Tony develop the property all that time. It was insult on top of injury. Even with his son's life at stake, M.L. was incensed. He asked to speak to his son, and Tony angrily passed the phone over to Dick. He begged his father to give in to Tony, but M.L. had trouble swallowing what he saw as an absurd farce. When Tony got back on the phone, he had a new demand. In light of M.L.'s tenacity, he now wanted a public apology from Meridian Mortgage. He also wanted them to admit they never had any intention of acting in good faith to help him develop his land. There was no more room for discussion. Tony told ML if the company didn't comply, he'd kill Dick then and there. And he made it clear he was more than willing to die for this too. Then he hung up. Tony had finally laid his cards on the table, but the battle was far from over. He spent hours at a time on the phone after that, talking to everyone from police to lawyers to the media. One of the first outlets he contacted was the local news channel, WIBC. He told Fred Heckman, Indianapolis's most trusted anchor, that he wanted to outline his full list of demands for the public to hear. WIBC obliged. Soon, the radio station sent out blasts to other local media, ensuring as many households as possible could tune in. ABC News even sent a camera crew to gather around a ham radio to film it for their national broadcast. Hundreds of thousands of Americans listened in as Tony delivered a belligerent polemic against Meridian Mortgage and the Hall family. With that, Tony had achieved his final and most important demand, airtime. Coming up, the Indianapolis Police Department lays a trap of their own. It's October 20th, 2018, one day until the end of the world. I'm on the compound of a secretive religious organization, interviewing a longtime member. Their leader has predicted that tomorrow will be the beginning of the apocalypse. The prediction? Yes, I am prepared. It will purify life from a lot of illusions. When I started working on this story, I was hoping to profile a unique apocalyptic group that had survived through many failed doomsday predictions. But the end of the world was just the beginning. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. 
I didn't specifically give my consent. I was frozen at the time. The angels, they arranged that he is supposed to have sex with his students. He is an amazing teacher, and also he's a sick f This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. On the evening of February 9th, 1977, 44-year-old Tony Karitsis sat with his eyes glued to his television set. He hadn't slept in over 24 hours, and his phone was ringing off the hook. In the living room, it was chaos. But in the bathroom, 42-year-old Dick Hall had to deal with mind-numbing boredom. By that point, he was lying prone on the floor, with his wrist handcuffed to a sewage pipe. He tapped messages on the metal in Morse code, hoping in vain that someone from the Indianapolis Police Department could hear him and send help. For the last 24 hours, Tony had riddled both the IPD and the Meridian Mortgage Company with his demands, and for what seemed like the first time in his life, he was going to get what he wanted. At 9 p.m. that night, the assistant vice president of Meridian Mortgage approached a podium in front of a crowd of reporters. When the VP got to the microphone, he got straight to the point. He pulled a folded up piece of paper from his pocket and started to read. The speech had an eerie feel to it that was unfamiliar to many in the 1970s. The company was speaking directly to Tony, knowing full well that he was watching at home. Yet what seemed to be an intimate conversation was being broadcast to the entire United States. While this type of spectacle is unfortunately common today, Tony's demand was the first of its kind. But just when it seemed like Tony finally had them on the ropes, his big moment was yanked out from under him. Speaking in a deadpan, matter-of-fact tone, the VP started by assuring Tony his statement represented the feelings of the entire board of Meridian Mortgage. Then, he uttered only a single sentence more, saying, quote, 
This is a public apology to Anthony Caritzis for all wrongs Meridian Mortgage or Hall Hoddle have committed in respect to Mr. Caritzis. That was it. There was no promise of freeing him from his $130,000 debt or any other remuneration. The company also didn't admit to any specific wrongdoings. All Tony got was a brief, emotionless statement from a company that clearly didn't care about his feelings. To Tony, it felt patronizing. He'd spent the last 24 hours parading around Indianapolis with a shotgun wired to a man's head. If the world didn't know he was serious by now, he would have to show them. Police were all too aware that Tony had a short fuse. Back at the apartment building, the IPD and journalists watched as he screamed out of his cracked window. He threatened Dick's life, repeating over and over that he would kill his hostage. In response, rumors swirled that law enforcement planned to call in SWAT teams and bomb squads to rush Tony's apartment. When one reporter said so on air, Tony went into a rage. By that point, he was so close to the edge that police did actually have to call in backup from Tony's brother. Jimmy Caritzis was the only one of Tony's four siblings that he was still on speaking terms with. He stepped in to try and de-escalate the situation before his brother did anything drastic. In a call broadcast live on air, Jimmy had a conversation with Tony that might have saved Dick Hall's life and he was the perfect man for the job. Of the hundreds of people staking out the apartment that night, Jimmy was the only one who knew Tony's soft spot. The Kuritzis family lost their mother in 1968, around the same time that Tony started behaving erratically. While her death was a devastating loss for the entire family, everyone agreed Tony was hit the hardest. Afterward, he seemed unwilling or unable to rein in his intense emotions. To get to the bottom of why his brother was truly driven to such extremes, Jimmy had to confront Tony's grief. The loss of a parent causes serious psychological trauma. In the study published in Northwestern University's Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, Melita Schmidberg found that intense grief can be debilitating, if not properly addressed, the stress can lead to a life of uncontrolled anger and violence. Schmidberg likened instances of violent crime to a kid throwing a tantrum. When angry, children lose contact with reality and only the loving presence of their mother can calm them down. In instances of childhood neglect or parental absence, the tantrum may go unchecked. Tony didn't have anyone besides Jimmy to talk him down. With the looming threat of the SWAT team busting down his door, Tony spoke to his brother for half an hour. Jimmy swore on their mother's grave that no plans were being made to rush the building. Though that actually wasn't true, he believed it was at the time. The appeal to their mother calmed Tony down a bit. Still, he did most of the talking as usual subjecting Jimmy to a familiar rant about his issues with Meridian Mortgage. By the time the call was over, Tony's apartment was shuttered. A tenuous peace fell over the complex. While Jimmy's presence was key to talking Tony off the ledge, Fred Heckman, a beloved local news anchor, 
provided great backup. He bore the brunt of Tony's anger live on the air to buy law enforcement enough time to craft a viable plan. By the second day of the affair, he and Tony had developed a friendly relationship. On February 10th, a handful of senior law enforcement officials stayed up with Fred while he spent the entire night speaking with Tony. Others could barely keep him on the phone for 30 minutes, but Tony liked Fred. Though the conversations were kept confidential, Tony believed his words were being broadcast live on air, since they usually were when he spoke with Fred. This crafty bait-and-switch was key to the police strategy moving forward. None of Fred's colleagues at WIBC knew what he was doing behind the scenes, which later raised concerns about his journalistic ethics. But Fred believed he was helping to save Dick Hall's life. He put his professional reputation on the line to do what he could. And his cooperation was essential. At 8 a.m. on February 10th, Fred headed to the apartment complex to directly negotiate with Tony on the issue of prosecutorial immunity. Upon his arrival, Fred was met by a swarm of his colleagues. He told him he was optimistic about where the situation was headed, but refused to say more. Without any clear idea of the plan, optimism was all the media outlets had to go on. Word spread like wildfire. By midday, a surprisingly upbeat mood swept over the stakeout. Journalists ordered sandwiches and donut platters, made jokes, and relaxed. Only Fred knew how precarious the situation really was. Having gone over 50 hours with no sleep, Tony was showing signs of breaking down. FBI psychologist Patrick Mullaney had noticed. Mullaney spent hours studying Tony's recent behavior, even making a graph of his various mood swings. And eventually, Mullaney thought he'd finally found the best way to get Tony and Dick out of the apartment. The police just had to make Tony believe surrendering was the best way to get what he wanted. The IPD strategy did a complete 180. Less than 24 hours ago, they were debating busting down Tony's door. Now they decided to comply with his demands. All of them. About an hour after he arrived at the Crestwood Village, Fred went live on air to broadcast a special announcement from the Marion County prosecutor. As the camera cut, the prosecutor thanked Fred and started reading a letter aloud. It was titled, Letter of Immunity Granted to Anthony George Karitsis. When the prosecutor finished reading, the broadcast shifted over to the hallway of Tony's apartment, where his brother Jimmy was speaking with reporters. He had just talked to Tony himself and encouraged him to take the offer. He was confident the whole situation would be resolved that very day. Following the announcement, Tony spoke with his lawyers on the phone. His morale was noticeably higher, and he seemed to be on the verge of taking the deal. For the most part, Mulaney's plan was working, although Tony was a bit smarter than he anticipated. On the phone, Tony said he was apprehensive about authorities drumming up a, quote, false thing to lure him out and arrest him. Mulaney needed to sweeten the deal. After consulting with the Marion County prosecutor and the IPD, 
he arranged for a $5 million promissory note to be issued in Tony's name. He framed it as compensation for Tony's sour dealings with Meridian Mortgage. Also fully understanding Tony's need to be a hero, he advised the authorities and the media to gather together in the apartment complex's lobby to create a stage of sorts. The goal was to make Tony feel like even if he surrendered, he would still have the final word. Tony's lawyers had spoken to him eight or nine times that day, and he'd always answered within one or two rings. But after they informed him about the $5 million, for the first time in three days, his phone went unanswered. Then, outside the building, a journalist on the scene called out, Tony Karitsis was coming down. Coming up, Tony makes his last stand. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. At 10.20 p.m. on February 10th, Tony Karitsis emerged from his apartment with his hostage, 42-year-old Dick Hall. Dick walked slowly, still wired to a double-barrel shotgun that could go off at any moment. As Tony walked down the stairs, cameras flashed and police radios crackled. Sharpshooters declared that they had the target in their sights. Tony made his way down to the lobby, where he joined hordes of IPD officers, photographers, and news reporters in a hot, crowded room. Dick stood in front of his captor. Both men were hemmed in by TV lights that only made things more uncomfortable. The first thing Tony did was demand the cameras be turned on. He then handed Dick a piece of paper and commanded him to read it out loud. When Dick started fumbling over the words, Tony grew agitated and started reading it himself. The paper was an acrid statement from Meridian Mortgage, describing their business with Tony from the company's point of view. It wasn't sympathetic. Tony sneered, interjected, and even laughed while he read it. Many of the onlookers had listened to Tony on air all week, but seeing how flighty his emotions were in person was uniquely terrifying. Meanwhile, Dick's eyes were hollow and downcast. He stared off into the distance, hardly making eye contact. After three days of adrenaline, uncertainty, and terror, he could barely keep himself together. For the next 25 minutes, Tony scanned the room, making a comment every time he spotted someone he knew. He took the time to shoot the breeze with his brother Jimmy, his attorney, and the other officers he'd met. 
He claimed he wanted all of them to know that he had been in the right all along. Amidst the chaos, the chief of police stood close by Tony. He had a white handkerchief in his pocket and a gun on his hip. Before the meeting, everyone had agreed. If the chief pulled the cloth from his jacket, it was a sign he was going to shoot and kill Tony. Eventually, the tension lessened. Tony calmed down and, in a ridiculous fashion, started apologizing for the trouble he'd put everyone through. As though a three-day hostage situation and threats to blow up a building were minor inconveniences. Police smiled uneasily and escorted him to another room, where they presented Tony with the $5 million note and his immunity agreement. He signed both and helped the authorities disarm the shotgun wired to Dick's neck. It seemed like a happy ending, but not for Tony. The moment Dick was taken to safety, an officer slapped handcuffs on his wrists. The immunity agreement was a sham, and there was no way he'd ever see $5 million. Tony was furious, but he'd completely lost his leverage. He couldn't do anything but bitterly complain as officers dragged him to a patrol car. Finally, after three days of drama, Tony's charade was over. In the months that followed, he was held in jail on an $850,000 bond, more than five times the amount of money he owed Meridian Mortgage. But Tony refused to go down quietly. He fully expected to clear his name in court. The trial was scheduled for October 5th, 1977. Tony was facing life imprisonment and the odds didn't look good. His attorneys scoured legal precedent for any strategy they could find to exonerate him. Ever a stubborn one, Tony thought his defense was perfectly obvious. Meridian Mortgage had lied and cheated him out of land that was rightfully his. Therefore, his actions, no matter what they had been, were completely justified. But he found that line had grown rather stale recently, especially as Dick Hall was made into a local hero for his bravery while being held hostage. Instead, Tony's legal team urged him to use an insanity defense. Tony was incensed by the suggestion, insisting over and over that he was a rational man who didn't need a psychiatrist. His legal team had to push him, but eventually Tony agreed to their request. He filed a motion to the Marion County Superior Court, claiming he was of unsound mind when he abducted Dick Hall. With that, the nationwide debate surrounding Tony's sanity was sprung wide open. In an effort to get an understanding of Tony's state of mind at the time he kidnapped Dick, the judge appointed five psychiatrists to examine him. One of them was Dr. Larry Davis, who testified that Tony was indeed legally insane. Davis cited a series of external factors in Tony's life that might have led to an unusual amount of anxiety. The doctor claimed that being ousted from the family trailer park, the difficulties Tony had developing his property, and the threat of foreclosure all caused him to believe the world was out to get him. His delusions grew so severe, the doctor claimed, that Tony started to tell his friends and family members he believed the mafia was going to kill him. 
other psychiatrists on the team disagreed. They pointed out how Tony had meticulously planned his kidnapping and deftly maintained control over an entire police force for days at a time. In their minds, there was no way a man with no deeper understanding of his actions could have pulled off such things. On top of that, Tony had committed similar crimes in the past. Less than 10 years earlier, he'd taken his own sister Effie hostage for three days straight to demand money from his parents. The pattern made it hard to believe Tony's decisions were simply caused by momentary lapses in sanity. As more witnesses and psychiatrists were called to the stand, the jury grew confused and exhausted by the debate. They started to feel the prosecution was relying too much on speculation. That made it difficult for them to conclude anything beyond a reasonable doubt. Early in the trial, the deputy prosecutor framed Tony as a paranoid and dangerous man. The defense quickly latched onto the term paranoid, claiming the prosecutor had already agreed Tony was mentally unstable. As each side dug in their heels, the semantic debate made the case murkier than ever. The state read the jury textbook definitions of mental illness and bombarded them with psychological studies. The defense, however, didn't attempt to diagnose Tony at all. They only needed to prove that he wasn't in his right mind, not the reason. To counter the prosecution's insistence that Tony was a mastermind and careful planner, his defense attorneys pointed out how terribly Tony had mismanaged his 17-acre plot of land. From the beginning, his incompetence was hard to argue. Tony had made poor business decisions at every turn, and even worse, he'd completely failed to recognize his own failures. His irrational fears that Meridian was hatching a conspiracy to take his property from him sealed the deal. In total, Tony turned down over $1 million in offers on the land from various supermarket chains. Instead, he'd invented a story about Meridian Mortgage being out to get him. The defense team truly made its point when Tony took the stand himself. In between fits of tears and his usual rambling rants, Tony spoke of one offer in particular from the owner of a supermarket chain. In many ways, Tony had relied on this deal to get out of a sticky situation. However, a representative from the chain testified that in June of 1976, the company decided not to build any more stores in the Indianapolis area. Tony was notified via letter of the change. From this single message, Tony's mind spun a web of conspiracies that couldn't have been further from reality. He believed the executives at the supermarket chain were in cahoots with Meridian Mortgage and ML Hall. He claimed the two parties made a secret deal to revoke the offer to spite him. Tony's testimony served as ample evidence of his emotional issues. He was unstable and unpredictable throughout the proceedings. He quickly broke down in tears when the prosecution cross-examined him. After a long day of debate, the jury delivered their verdict. In a surprising decision, they announced they found Tony Karitsis not guilty by reason of insanity. When Tony heard the news, he was sitting at the defendant's table with lawyers on either side. He grew nervous and started to fidget as the judge approached the bench. 
When Tony heard the magic words, not guilty, he stood up, clearly about to launch into one of his rants. The judge ordered him to sit down, and for perhaps the first time, Tony listened. That decision would go on to change Indiana state law forever. Prior to Tony's case, the burden was on the prosecution to prove insanity, a standard that was too high for most juries. In order to prove anything in court, the state had to convince the jury beyond any reasonable doubt. Typically, beyond reasonable doubt requires over 90% certainty that something is true. This means the deputy prosecutor was responsible for convincing 12 people, each with 90% certainty, that Tony was legally sane. Since he was unable to do so, Tony went free by default. As a direct result of the case, Indiana lawmakers started to rethink the arrangement. The issue hadn't come up before because the insanity defense was used so sparingly. Given the wide publicity of Tony's case, they worried that was about to change and didn't want others trying to game the system. In 1978, the Indiana legislature passed a law that transferred the burden of proof to the defense. If the defense couldn't provide evidence of legal insanity beyond a reasonable doubt, the prosecution would be successful. The change made the insanity defense a less viable option for defendants facing charges of violent crime. Tony Karitsis walked away scot-free after holding another man hostage for three days straight. The court's only request was that he be admitted to a psychiatric evaluation but thanks to some maneuvering by his legal team, he never ended up seeing a doctor. He lived the rest of his life outside of the public eye, eventually passing away in 2005 at the age of 72. But his crimes weren't forgotten. Nearly 30 years after the kidnapping, the first sentence of his obituary introduced him as, quote, a man who took a mortgage company executive hostage and paraded him through downtown Indianapolis. That was Tony Karitsis. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on Tony Karitsis amongst the many sources we used, we found Alan Barry and Mark Enoch's documentary, Dead Man's Line, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Hughes Ransom, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. These are not the people that you would normally associate with a cult. Do you think I need to be worried for my safety? I definitely think you should be prudent. This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd.